Do you know that moment when you're fishing and you have that fish of a lifetime on and something happens? You were dreaming of seeing it and verifying that this was the largest fish of your life, but you did something and lost it. Ryan Johnston is here today to give you some tips on hooking and landing steelhead and other fish, and we'll give you some great stories on cast hope and what you can do to help struggling kids. This is the Wet Fly Swing Podcast, where we show you the best places to travel to for fly fishing, how to find the best resources and tools to prepare, and what you can do to give back to the fish species we love. Hey, I'm Dave, host of the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. I've been fly fishing since I was a kid. I grew up in a fly shop and have created one of the largest fly fishing podcasts in this country. I've also interviewed more of the greatest fly anglers than just about anyone in this country. Today, Ryan Johnston is here to give us the three biggest tips on landing a steelhead once you hook up. These tips will address the fish barrel roll, the jumping fish, and the screaming or running fish. We will also find out how to side drift for success and a great tip on finding groups of fish to increase your chances this season. Plus, you're going to hear three stories about casthope.org and the program that's been changing the lives of struggling youth. Back to the bread and butter, Ryan Johnston from casthope.org. How you doing, Ryan? Good. Thanks for having me on, bud. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for doing this this morning. I know you were saying uh, when we first off air got on, you're, you're, this time of year, you're not a morning person. And so we're getting started nice and early. But uh, I wanted to just touch base. We're going to get into, a, I think, some of your past background on guiding with steelhead in California. We're going to talk about Cast Hope, which is a great uh, program you have going. But yeah, but now you're in Montana. So talk about that a little bit. What's going on now? What are you doing this time of year? Well, this time of year, uh, I'm shoveling some snow and keeping warm, um, taking a California boy out of good weather and putting him into the Rockies. <laughs> How's it been, Ryan, making that change? So you were in California, which everybody thinks of California. There's definitely some nasty weather as you go up north probably, but I'm guessing uh, Montana isn't quite as warm as California? No. Well, I, yeah, I was raised in San Diego. I uh, left San Diego when I was um, 18, so I left the perfect weather and moved to Northern California for college, went to UC Davis, and uh, lived in the Northern California Valley for the second 20 years of my life. So, um, no, I have not lived in severe, harsh weather. So this has been a learning process of you know, pipes freezing and things breaking. And, uh, yeah, this week we had negative 25. Damn. So that's not too pleasant. What is that like? What's the negative 25 when you go outside? What's that like? You know, you don't spend a lot of time outside. So you go out for 10, 15 minutes and, you know, if you expose your skin too long, it's, you know, you start getting some stinging cheeks and stinging noses. And, um, so you're pretty much just hopping from heater to heater, you know, whether it's a store or, you know, your car or your house. But yeah, it, it's, it's a learning curve. The nice thing is it doesn't last forever. You know, where we're at here in Flathead Valley, we just get these little outliers. So it lasts for three or four days and then, you know, it's back to the high twenties, low thirties. So luckily it's not like Alaska where, you know, you have negative temperatures for weeks at a time, but it's definitely an adjustment when you uh, were born and raised in the perfect weather of San Diego. <laughs> Did you ever think about heading back to San Diego? I, it, it seems like there's some downfalls to San Diego too, right? There's a lot of people down there and stuff. Have you ever thought about heading back? Uh, I do. I actually dream about that, you know, maybe in a retired life, buying a center console boat and living uh, summer times down there and chasing tuna and Dorado offshore um, and just you know, having friends and family come down and pay for gas and run a boat all summer. That's kind of my life goal when I get older and my kids are out of the house and 
you know, I just, I love that Southern California offshore scene and just the excitement of, you know, chasing, feeding fish. And it's just, it's a whole different world than our freshwater trout and steelhead fishing. Yeah. So what is it in, in San Diego, you know, what is, I mean, obviously it's got the weather, you're right there in the coast. It's got this cool thing going, but what is it that maybe what would be a negative about uh, San Diego? Uh, negative about people is people, like you kind of nailed it earlier. It's just a lot of people. We live in an area now where a big town in Montana, you know, it's 25,000 people. You know, you live in San Diego and you're living with what, 2 million people. Right. Um, so it's the... Uh, you know, my, my parents still live there and, you know, their whole life is based around when the traffic's going to be right. You got to get here by this certain hour. You got to leave there at a certain hour, you know? And so, you know, a lot of their life is dictated by the people and the traffic, but you get the perfect weather where it's mid sixties to high seventies, like pretty much every day of the year. <laughs> so you don't ever get tired of, you don't ever get tired of the weather when it's the same temperature all year long. Yeah, if you're a four seasons person, you probably wouldn't like it. But I think being raised there and I just something about wearing flip flops year round is pretty appealing to me. That's great. No, I, I hear it. we we've been down there before. We we talked kind of jokingly, probably more than anything about moving, just because it's spendy too, right? That's one of the other things. It's not cheap to live in San Diego. I'm guessing still or not getting cheaper. Yes. Well, sadly, where we live in Montana is not cheap as well. So we, we moved here from Chico, California and about an hour and a half north of Sacramento and Chico is an affordable place to live in California, but where we live in Montana is probably 25 to 30% more in hall places than where we left in, uh, in Chico. So a lot of people are moving to Montana, just like me. Um, a lot of the locals are saying we're ruining the state. <laughs> yeah. You're one of those Californians, right? You're one of those Californians that's moved into Montana. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Me and a whole bunch of other people. I don't think of myself as a normal Californian, you know, being from uh, 20 years as a fly fishing guide and, you know, so I have a little different perspective, I think, than the average Californian. But um, yeah, it's been really, it's, been really cool there's so many transplants here in montana um over the last six to seven years that it's actually really welcoming there's a whole bunch of people here that are looking for community and friendships and relationships and the whole anti-californiaism you know that approach it does exist but it's not nearly as apparent as a lot of us talk about you know so um it's actually been really really refreshing and how welcoming this community has been to uh, me and my family. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Well, today I think we're going to dig into a couple things. Like I said at the top, you were going to talk. I think steelhead is definitely a big topic for a lot of listeners, you know, and or steelhead nymphing. We're going to talk a little about that. And then uh, also Cast Hope. Maybe we can just start there with Cast Hope. You know, there's a lot of great groups around the country. I, I want to hear kind of how this came to be. And I know Hogan's involved in this as well, but uh, maybe you can just talk about that. Where, where did this idea of Cast Hope come from and, and describe what it is a little bit? Yeah, so I'm the founder um, and still con executive director of the organization. I started Cast Hope in 2009. Cast Hope came from a sermon our pastor gave. My wife and I were attending a Presbyterian church in Chico, and our pastor was talking about using your personal gifts to change your local community. So a lot of times you go to church, you hear the pastor talk, you leave and it just, whatever he talked about, you know, exits your head as soon as you open the, the door. But that Sunday, I just couldn't get the message out of my head. So I just kept thinking about it and decided that I needed to do something in Chico to help support my local community. So I've always had a passion for kids and working with youth. I had volunteered for a bunch of youth organizations you know, as I was growing up and 
So uh, I decided I was going to donate one trip a month as a guide um, just to a kid who was having a hard time in life, you know, so and I just did this word of mouth, you know, just doing it on my own and, you know, took out a kid whose parents were going through a divorce. So there was, he was going through that separation of the family. A couple months later, took out a kid who was, you know, battling cancer and just did this for about six months and eventually had this junior high kid come out with his uncle. And the junior high uh, kid's dad had passed away the year before. So the uncle was stepping into his life, trying to be that male role model for him. And so we were on the lower Sacramento River, fishing for trout. And the kid was in the front of the drift boat and the uncle was in the back. The kid had already caught one fish, but then he caught his second fish. Uh, we take the pictures. We experience that you know joy. And he turns around to his uncle, who's you know sitting behind me. And says, this is the coolest thing I have ever done. I want to start fly fishing with you. I want to go buy a fly rod. Like, I want Amazing. this to become our thing. And then just experiencing that pure joy of that kid. Some people call it a holy moment. I call it a God moment. And I just said, hey, I, I got to figure out how to do this more than once a month. So all the steps were kind of in place. Um, at the time, I was working on an MBA at Chico State. I was guiding full time and doing a master's in the evening and so working with two professors and then a, one of our friends was also a nonprofit consultant. So our friend and the two teachers uh, helped me create a business plan of taking kids out fly fishing. And that's when Cast Hope became. So we created the business plan. And then about six months later, I uh, started applying for the nonprofit status and got that approved. The biggest thing we do with Cast Hope is that all of the kids, their first experience uh, is with a, a guide. So their first experience fly fishing is on a guided trip. Our belief is that to really catch a kid, um, if that person needs to hook and connect to a fish as soon as possible. A lot of organizations in um, that focus on youth in this country, they focus on casting, they focus on fly tying. And then six months later, they take the kid fishing. Right. And a lot of these organizations have a hard time retaining the kids because kids these days and age with all the screens, they're used to instant gratification. And it's a sad thing. You know, the yep. whole process of us when we were children and, you know. Totally um, different. Yeah. Totally different. Right. Like we, we were taught patience of going out and waiting for a bite. Right. So to interact well with the new generation is you need to plug them in as fast as possible. So we have about 30 guides who work across the board at our different regions of Cast Hope. And uh, the whole goal is to connect that kid with the fish as soon as possible. And then as soon as you connect that kid and then you offer them additional guide trips and then you keep feeding the fire, the new passion, right? And then three, four trips later, uh, we do what we call clinics, and at the clinics, we give them free rods, flies, all the gear they need, and we teach them how to fish a spot within about 30 to 45 minutes of their house, something that is uh, they can do on their own where they don't need soap guides. So we use the guides to kind of catch them and get them connected to the fish right off the bat. And then um, a few months later, we're then giving them all the necessary equipment to fish their own local waters on their own. So, yeah, we have been really blessed. Um, the organization has grown a ton since 2009. We currently now have four regions of Cast Hope. 
So we have the original region we started in Chico. We call that the North Valley. So that we're serving kids from Sacramento to Reading. And then about five years into our program, we had a donor come to us and said, hey, we've been watching from afar what you guys have been doing. We think it's really cool. We want Castle in our community. And so we pitched this donor a business plan. He signed up and he decided to give $16,000 a year for a three-year commitment. So he made 16000 for each year. Then we started Cast Hope Tahoe. So Tahoe is serving kids from Truckee and Reno. And so Matt Heron, who's a, a popular outfitter in the Tahoe area, Matt Heron's our regional director up there. And then about three or four years after that, you know, we started our third region, Cast Hope San Diego, which is close to my heart, you know, born and raised there. So we reached out to Conway Bowman, who's the big Mako guy in San Diego. And Conway runs um, Cast Hope San Diego now for the last four years. And then the exciting news is we finally have moved out of state and we opened a region in Asheville, North Carolina last summer. So we have a regional director out there. His name's Ryan as well. And we're working with Davison Outfitters. The guides are, you know, serving the kids. And then the vision moving forward is we're uh, looking for funding right now to start Cast Hope here in Flyhead Valley. Now that I'm a resident here. Um, it only makes sense to have cast up here. So yeah, we, we currently have about 700 kids in our program who uh, are all being introduced to fly fishing for our first time. But our biggest goal is we don't want to be a one-time organization. There are organizations that take a kid fitching one time and says, oh, was that cool? And they're like, oh, that was awesome. And he's like, all right, well, see you later. You know, our hope is that we can work with kids from the time they enter our organization until they graduate high school. So our age demographic is 10 to 18. So we have kids who come into our program. Let's say they come in at 12. Uh, we hope they stay with us all the way through high school. And um, it's kind of interesting. When, when I started the organization, I never imagined that we would have kids who would become so passionate about fly fishing that they would turn to their careers. So we now have uh, four different kids who have come through Cast Hope who have become fly fishing guides and that's now what they do for a living. So some of those, they're not kids anymore. They're all in their young 20s. And I've turned into more of a, a mentor than, than anything, right? Um, after being a guide for 21 years now, you know, and to have a kid in Idaho, uh, we have another one in Montana, we have two in Alaska, to call them and have conversations about you know, interacting with clients and what does it mean to be professional and what does it mean to do your job well and these are all kids I met when they were in junior high and early high school, right? When they were playing sports and chasing girls and, you know, and to watch them grow into men and, and make fly fishing, you know, their career is, it's pretty humbling to, to see the process. Today's episode is brought to you by Northern Rockies Adventures, premium fly fishing trips in the heart of the BC Rockies. Premium all-inclusive fishing packages from Vancouver, BC. Daily fly-in fishing trips to get you straight to the action, and the lodges offer private cabins and the utmost comfort. Learn more about this exclusive BC fishing trip at nradventures.com slash wetflyswing. Angler's Coffee roasts some of the highest quality coffee on the market, and every bag you purchase goes to support the fish species we love. My favorite this month is the Woolies Blend. The dark roast that Joe has worked his magic meets my needs, and uh, and I can't explain exactly what it is, but it's smooth and uh, and just right to get my day started. 
You can head over to Anglers right now at wetflyswing.com slash anglers to support a sustainable company with unsurpassed taste. I see why it's successful. I mean, I think that this plan to keep, stay with them, you know, I've heard, I know there's other programs around. I have a friend that does totally different thing, but with kids and he used to, you know, basically they stay with them all the way through high school and, and keep checking in on them. And even after the fact, you know, so like you're not in, and that's really cool because now you're seeing these stories of kids that are becoming guides and I'm sure they're going to tell more people about this, but this is amazing. And my one question I had as you're going, it seems like the challenge is you're trying to scale it, right? I'm sure there's people listening right now who are in states all over the country. Like, what would you tell them, you know, if they're listening now, like, what could they do to help this if they wanted to help some of these kids? Yeah. I mean, our, our vision long-term is that we hope that Castle turns into, you know, 10 to 12 regions across the country. You know, our, our hope is to impact as many kids as we can. And um, we both have a passion for fly fishing and the fly fishing industry talks about giving back to young people. And to be honest, there's very few people who actually are doing it. It's talked a lot about in the industry of, you know, um, you know, I think there's a huge age demographic now that's coming in. It's more of the skater surf scene, right? right. It's the, yep. it's the 25 to 40 year olds that you know, are, are taking on the sport. But, um, before that it was predominantly what 45 to 70 year old males, you know, um, I think our sport is adapting, but they still haven't adapted to youth. And I think it's hard to adapt to youth because you still have, they don't have money, you know? So an industry that's targeted at creating income and running a business, it's hard to target youth. So in terms of scaling it, you know, people can donate on our website. If you have a larger vision of maybe wanting to start cast hope, um, in your own town. Um, those are conversations that we would have to have on a personal level. And then, you know, I have to go to the, the board of directors to get that all approved. Sure. But yeah, that, that's a much larger conversation, but in terms of scaling at our vision and hope is that this turns into 10 or 12 sites, you know, let's say in the next 10 years, but yeah, there's a lot of good happening. There's a lot of kids who need this and, you know, we, we all want to be in a relationship, right? I mean, each one of us has a need to connect with other people. And a lot of these kids we work with come from the Boys and Girls Club. They come from foster care homes. Uh, you know, some of these kids are coming from trauma situations where they've been removed from the family and, you know, they don't trust a lot of people. Relationships are dangerous, right? Because yeah. of the trauma they've experienced, you know? And so we want to come into their lives and be an outlet you know, be an area where we can connect them to outdoors in a healthy way through fly fishing. Man, the impact you see just from removing that kid from, you know, their normal life and putting them into an environment. You know, one great story is we, we had this kid from the Chico area and we do a specialized trip for our older kids and we, we do the Heritage Trout Challenge. Um, the Harris Trout Challenge is something the state put together that mimic the, the Wyoming cut slam where you have to go around and catch certain species of fish in the state. So California has 11 native species of trout that call California home. And they put this challenge together where you have to catch six of the 11. So each year we choose four or five of these kids or older, like high school age kids to come do the specialized trip where we're driving around California and, you know, they're seeing new things. One of the fish you have to catch is a, a coastal cutthroat and uh, this stream we fish, it flows out right onto the beach 
And um, so we went and fished the stream. Everybody caught their coastal cutthroat. And then after we fished for four or five hours, we just let the kids just go play in the, the ocean, right? And so there's five kids on this trip. Four of them are jumping in the waves. And then this one kid named Obi is just standing on the sand looking out at the ocean. And I'm just kind of observing from afar. And then I walk up to Obi and I was like, Obi, it's beautiful, right? And he goes, well, it's so big. <laughs> and so I just, I paused for a second. I was like, it's so big. And, you know, here's, you know, this comment coming from someone who was raised in San Diego, raised on the ocean, you know, chasing tuna, living on the beach. And I turned to Obi and I was like, Obi, have you seen the ocean before? And he goes, no, I, I, I've never seen it. I only seen pictures and I've people have told me about it and this kid lived two and a half hours from the ocean yet had never had the resources or the family ability to get him there so you know our vision is taking kids fishing but the larger picture is every kid is impacted in a different way you know you're taking them out of their normal settings yeah so we, we really believe that there's kids all across the country that need this you know yeah it's not about the fishing right it's about the experience yeah, 100%. We're just fishing as the vehicle to access the kids and get them out of their normal environment. And then from there, you know, you start a relationship and then hopefully you're able to mentor them over years of time. And then that's when change really happens. You know, it's the, the relationship is what's changing the child's life. It's not the fishing. Right, right, right. This is, yeah, it's pretty awesome. And do you guys uh, have, is it kind of girls and boys or is it mostly boys or how's that look? Yeah, no, we have a lot of girls in our program, you know, because we work with the Boys and Girls Club, um, foster care homes, group homes. Um, yeah, I don't know the exact number, but, you know, guessing it's probably two thirds boys, one third girls. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so you got to go. And I think that's always a, I know, a, a challenge for us just kind of getting more, you know, trying to make it equal, right? Get as many female guests on as, as male. And it seems like, you know, it's harder to do. But I feel like that you guys, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of girls out there that are struggling with the same sorts of things and can have the same impact. Yeah, there's actually a couple a couple really cool videos on our website, casthope.org, a really inspirational video. Um, Jordy's a girl that I mentored for several years. She's now a student at the University of Wyoming. Um, then there's another one, Christina. Um, she's on the website as well. And Christina has a really rough story. You know, she was a part of 13 different group homes Jeez. and it, uh, was just kind of bouncing around the state of California. And then finally, uh, one of my good buddies passed board of directors named Darren Wood. Um, Darren Wood was working at the group home she was at and he really connected with her and said, Christina, you, you can blame all the people in the world you want, but kids who come from a trauma-based home, yeah, maybe you bounce around once or twice, but he goes, there's one common denominator here and it's you, you know? So at some point you got to stop blaming other people and start looking at yourself. And Darren and Christina really, Darren just hit something and they really connected. And, you know, he introduced her to cast hope and use, you know, the fishing trips kind of as an encouragement for her. And then over time, Christina and I became friends. So she ended up becoming, falling in love with basketball and she ended up becoming an athlete at Sacramento State. And so she made the, the college team there. And so Christina and I, even though now she's in her early twenties, we still text back and forth, like how's life going? Hmm. You know, how's basketball, you know, and it's the connection, right? We all need people and these kids need mentors in their life too. And so our hope is just using fishing as a vehicle, just to connect with a kid, to create an opportunity for change. 
Yeah, that's really powerful. This is good. Um, do you guys, when you go out there and are you mostly trout for the kids the first time or like if it's in California, you do some of the steelhead, uh, some of that upper level stuff? Uh, yeah. So it, it kind of depends on which region the kids come from. So like our Chico area where we started, um, that is predominantly trout and bass. You know, we have found that the kids do really well with the float and fly stuff, you know, kind of indicator still water fishing for, for spotted bass wintertime. We have several of our guides uh, who are pretty proficient at that. Uh, so the kids love that one. It's pretty hard to beat taking kids on the lower sack just because yeah. of you know, how amazing of a trout fishery that river is and how easy it is to catch fish there. So that's a really good place to take them. But like our San Diego kids, you know, they do have some stock trout, you know, in the wintertime. But um, our San Diego kids are pretty much fishing bays, uh, whether that be San Diego Bay or Mission Bay. You know, so they're primarily targeting, you know, spotted bass, calico bass, uh, halibut. And then as, like you're talking about, as kids become more advanced, as their skills increase, um, as their desire to be challenged, then we introduce other fish, right? We take them steelhead fishing. We take them striper fishing. Um, Down in San Diego, that's what our advanced kids start going offshore. You know, they'll target um, yellowtail and tuna. And we just had a kid this week caught his first black sea bass you know it was like a 15 pound black sea bass so yes as they mature as they get older you know some of the the age you know abilities you know it's pretty hard to take a 12 year old steelhead fishing just in terms of physical strength um but you know as they age and they get stronger later in high school then we'll start introducing you know the more advanced methods and you know fish are just harder to catch so yeah it's pretty cool you know watching kids mature in fishing but also mature in life and just you know being on that journey with them for years and seeing the maturation i mean it's it's humbling as an adult and as a mentor yeah that's the best part of cast soap it's the relationship and watching the maturation uh watching the passion grow you know and watching their their abilities increase and just their desire to go chase bigger and hotter fish, right? I mean, it's the same thing that happens to every fly fisherman, right? A lot of guys start on bass or trout and, you know, after five or six years, they want like, oh, what's next? And, you know, you, you're always looking for the the newest thing, right? Yeah, that's cool. And then the key is to get the kids in and get them into fish like quickly. It sounds like that's one of the biggest things that, that kind of hooks them, I guess, right? Yes, 100%. And again, we're talking about a different generation of kids who, you know, they have instant gratification all the time. Um, so, you know, we're just, I guess, feeding the beast, but feeding the beast with a, a new healthy hobby. And so when you put them in a boat with a paid guide, um, all of our guides are paid about half of what they normally would make. It's their highest probability of catching a fish quickly. There's a lot of people who take people fishing and they volunteer, but you can't make up for hundreds and thousands of days on the water. So our goal is we want to connect that kid to a fish as soon as possible. So we hire local guides who do this for a living and they are the ones who are personally taking the kids out, you know? So I used to do that a lot, especially when the organization was new, you know, I was one of the guides. And now uh, that, you know, Castle has grown to four regions and 700 kids, um, have more of a, a manager role and I'm just kind of, you know, supporting everyone from like a 10,000 foot level, you know, and in terms of making sure the program is working well, and you know, we're raising money to support the program and then working with the board of directors. So 
my hope is to, like I said, our hope is in 2025, um, we want to start Cast Hope here in Flathead Valley. And I'm kind of missing that. I'm kind of missing the the connection with the kids um, now that I've been you know gone for a year and a half. You know, I have the connection with the older kids that I started guiding when, you know, CASUP was new, but um, I'm ready to start that again here in Flathead. Right on. Get back into it and like get get on the ground and just, and are you going to be doing some of the, the work actually working with the kids, guiding that sort of thing? Yeah, that's my hope. Um, that's, that's my favorite thing to do, uh, to be honest, is just, there's nothing better than watching a kid catch a fish and just the joy and the smiles and, you know, there, there's another part to it, too, that not every kid takes it to it really quickly, right? So anyone who's fly fish for any significant part amount of time knows that it can be challenging and, you know, the learning curve can be steep at times, you know? And so sometimes you get kids who really struggle and, you know, encouraging that kid to work through the process, you know? Like I had a kid one time in California who just was really struggling how to, you know, cast an indicator and we're just doing the water loading, lobbing off the side of the boat back and forth and just was really struggling. You know, he, he wasn't picking it up and, you know, usually we take 10, 12 minutes to teach a kid how to cast. And, you know, here I am 40 minutes later and the still, you know, the kid can only cast 10 feet off the boat and just uh you know, he got to just lost his momentum and, you know, he said, I suck at this. I don't want to do this. And, those are teachable moments. This is what I've learned after, you know, guiding hundreds of kids through the program is that, you know, as soon as that kid gets discouraged and says, I suck or I, I don't want to do this anymore. I told the kid, I was like, okay, you know, next time in life, if you tell yourself you suck, you're never going to try. Right. So like if you're playing sports, and you're like, oh, I suck at this. You're always going to be on the bench or you're never going to make the team. But if you're willing to work through the process and say, okay, I'm going to do one step each time. I'm, you know, say I'm playing basketball, I'm going to dribble better or I'm going to shoot better. You know, and for fly casting, I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to haul my line or I'm going to, you know, add one little technique each little step and then in time you'll get better. You know, so I, I made a promise to the kid. I said, if you stand up and try for the next five hours and you actually give me 100% of your effort, I guarantee you will catch a fish. You know, a lot of rivers, you can't make that guarantee, but when you're on the lower sack, you can. Uh, <laughs> so he's like, you can't make that promise. I was like, well, I mean, I know I'm taking a risk, but let's see if I can pull it off. You give me a hundred percent, I'll give you a hundred percent. And so he almost challenged me. Like he wanted to prove me wrong. And so he stood up and I said, okay, you're not listening to what I'm saying. Here's the two techniques and casting you need to do better. And like, just try to focus on those two things. And you know, your flies are going to go 10 to 15 feet further. And sure enough, 10 minutes later, he's starting to improve, you know? And I said, okay, let's, let's go fish now. And so we started the process and what do you know, 30 minutes later, he catches a fish and you know, the kid was elated. And by the end of the, you know, we do these like two thirds of a day. So by the end of the trip, there was two other guides on the trip. So there was, uh, five kids and one mentor with them and the kid had caught nine fish and he's like looking around the other boats going like how many fish did you guys catch how many fish did you guys catch and just the amount of pride that he was feeling and i told him okay i want you to stop right now look at me and so he turns around and he goes okay i want to take you back to five hours ago when you told me you sucked you didn't want to ever try this and now you're the most excited kid on this whole trip and you're asking me when you can come again in life if you don't give it a shot, if you don't try, if you don't work through the process, you'll never know what this moment feels like. But you were able to overcome your discouragement. 
you were able to overcome, you know, the hard part of learning and you absorb the failures and you got to this incredible place, you know? So I need you to hold on to this moment right now when it comes to school, when it comes to dating, when it comes to life. These are the moments that, you know, you can teach kids that are applicable for the rest of their lives. Now, you know, whether or not they hold on to it, who knows, but they turn into teachable moments. Right, right, right. I love it. I love it. That's a great story. I, I, I try to hold on to those and share those things with my kids too. Some of those, you know, I think of like failure, you know, it's something that always has a, a negative thing, but I think of it like, you know, I've sort of heard some quotes like those who fail most win, you know, or whatever. But the idea being that life's going to be a bunch of failures, probably more failures, you know, but that you got to get through the failures to get to the successes. Yes. I think that's, that's like the cool stuff. And you're teaching these kids who have been struggling probably most of their lives. You're giving them these huge lifelong lessons that not only are they taking away for fly fishing, but like you're, you know, obviously impacting their life. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a humbling process, man. I mean, you know, it, it's so cool to watch the joy, watch the maturation and just watch the connection to the outdoors. You know, a lot of kids these days are so tied into screens, whether it's gaming or computers or, you know, TV movies and, you know, our generation, we spent hours and hours outside. Our, our parents kicked us out of the house saying, get out of the house, go do something, you know. And um, that's just not how it is for most kids anymore. And it's one thing we're really enjoying about Montana is having land and saying, get out of the house, like go play with sticks or cut something down or, you know, like the kids in California and a lot of this country are just so addicted to screens that you know, it makes me really nervous for outdoor spaces and what that means for the next generation and who's going to champion that, you know, and who's going to protect our outdoor spaces. And, you know, again, this is not the goal of cast hope, but it's, it's the natural fruit that occurs. Yeah, that's it. I mean, there's all sorts of things that are benefits of this program, including that. Yeah. I mean, if you're not getting the younger kids out there into it, you know, if they're all going into their digital world of whatever, yeah, there's not going to be anybody here to keep this thing going. Yeah. hundred percent. Nice. Well, this is amazing. I think uh, all we'll have links to everything in the show notes, you know, from what we're talking about here. I wanted to kind of turn a little bit and talk a little about, I think, another one of the things you spent a lot of time on, which was steelhead fishing in California. And just maybe highlight, we have a lot of people that are into steelhead and maybe we could talk about that a little bit and, and we'll bring it back to Cass Hope before we get out of here. But uh, but maybe talk about that. So you were guiding in the rivers in Northern California. What were the big steelhead rivers that you guided that were people were coming for? Yeah, so California has kind of an interesting steelhead scene. I kind of break the steelhead scene in California into three different groups. You have the what I call the valley steelhead. So those are the fish that are coming through Golden Gate Bridge, uh, San Francisco Bay, and they're swimming up all the tributaries to the bay. You know, so those are your valley steelhead. You know, I, w- I was guiding, you know, obviously the lower sack has steelhead on them. A big tributary to the lower sack is called the Feather River and the Yuba River. Um, the Yuba doesn't have a ton of steelhead on them. There's a few still left, but the feather has a hatchery, uh, has a decent number of wild fish as well. So I'd spent a lot of time on the Feather River in the valley, um, as well as fishing for steelhead down low on the lower Sacramento River. And then the second group of steelhead fishing you have, and I call it kind of the mountain steelhead fishing, and that's with the, the Trinity River, which is famous in Northern California. So what happens the difference between the valley and the mountains, um, the valley fish are kind of like big rainbows. You know, they're those fish that, you know, a lot of steelheaders would call half pounders. You know, they're those fish that are 18 to 21 inches on average. 
a good sized fish on the Feather River is like 24, 25 inches. And then, you know, a few times a season, you would see those 27 to 29 inch fish, you know. So most of your largest fish on the Feather were topping out around, you know, 10 pounds or so. And then you jump to the Trinity River, you know, you're up in the mountain situation. So the water gets a lot colder. Those fish behave a lot differently because they're just dealing with, you know, colder water temperatures, but your, your numbers go down, um, on the feather river. Most days, you know, we're hooking 12 to 14 fish a day. Um, like I said, it's kind of like big trout fishing, but then you jump up to the Trinity river and you know, in your average day, you're going to cast about half of that. You know, you're going to cast probably, or you're going to hook six or seven steelhead a day. But the benefit of that is your, your, your fish size goes up. You know, your average fish now is kind of that 24 to 27 inches. You know, they're that, they're that six to eight pound fish. And then, you know, you're seeing fish around 29, 30 inches, you know, every few days. And then, you know, big fish on the Trinity are going to go, you know, 33, 34, 35 would be a monster, you know? So it's that next five or six inches, you know, in terms of the average and also the larger size. And then you jump to the coastal steelhead and, you know, what I call the real steelhead fishing, that's where, you know, we have the similar size fish as you do in Oregon, right? You yeah. know, your average fish is eight to 12 pounds. You know, your big ones are 15 to 18 and winter steelhead, winter steelhead. Yep. And everyone's looking for the 20 pounder that doesn't exist, you know? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So steelhead fishing in California is really, it's interesting because it gives you a lot of options, right? It's not just a winter game. In the valley, we have spring and fall run fish. Uh, on the Trinity, you have fall and winter fish. And then on the coast, you have your traditional, you know, January, February, March fish in the wintertime. So the, the nice thing about guiding steelhead in Northern California is that, you know, it's not like I'm just guiding steelhead for three months. Um, you know, I'd be guiding steelhead for about seven months a year. So it is always a nice mix up for guys who wanted to be a little more challenged than just, you know, going trout fishing on the lower sack or trout fishing on the Yuba. So yeah, it was fun to bounce around, you know, so, uh, I fished four different steelhead rivers, um, just depending on time of year and, you know, what season it was. Are the coastal ones, do people know about those or those kind of secrets that you'd be fishing there? They used to be secrets. Uh, you know, I think social media has (laughs) ruined a lot of secret places and rivers. You know, I started fishing the California coast in 2003, about then. So probably, you know, a little over 20 years ago, um, 2003, there wasn't really many guys doing it. There was a lot of bait guys who were running plugs and, but the fly fishing scene really hadn't found it yet, you know? And so there was a few of us guides who kind of started going over there and exploring and finding boat ramps and just figuring out how to do it. And it was fun. I mean, it was just this like big unknown scene and you'd go fishing for a week when could, even when conditions were prime and, uh, you might see one other fly fisherman in a week. You know, you, you go, let's say the Eel River, uh, spent a ton of time on the Eel. You go to the Eel River now with prime water conditions, uh, you're going to see 20 guideboats every day. Oh, wow. The seal has been broken. Some of that is guiding and some of that is social media. And I think people have learned that they're really not as hard to catch as you, most people think they are. You know, um, I mean, you know, when you're swinging for them, that's a whole nother world. But, you know, when you're nymphing for them, you know, catching steelhead is really not that hard. It's just a matter of being there at the right time when the water is in good condition, you know. So, yeah, it's not a secret anymore. You know, it's it's kind of sad to actually be a part of that 20 year development of, you know, seeing hardly anyone to going there now. And you can name vehicles as you drive down the road from parking lot to parking lot of, you know, other 
other guide buddies, you know, or competing guides and, and, um, yeah, it, it's definitely because of the pressure. You don't catch as many as you used to, you know, you, you still catch them. You know, most days on the Eel River, you know, like per boat, you're going to hook two or three fish for a boat, you know, so whether that's one angler or two anglers, that's kind of average. Drift Hook is back again, baby. Back for another big year and here to outfit you with the flies you need for your next huge trip this year. From their special nymphs to dry flies to hopper streamers and of course their Euronymph fly kits, they've got you covered. These ship free directly to your door, ready to start catching fish. At drifthook.com, you can find over 50 instructional videos and over 200 articles to improve your fly fishing game. And I've been testing uh, the uh, Drifthook articles with some of our guests on the podcast as we've been verifying that Matt has been spot on with uh, a lot of his content. Been a lot of fun this year. So search it up this year. You will likely to find Drifthook online teaching you. Uh, They also have over 150 verified five-star reviews and a 30-day money-back guarantee. You can head over right now to drifthook.com to support this podcast and a small company doing amazing things. That's Drifthook, D-R-I-F-T-H-O-O-K.com and use the code SWING, S-W-I-N-G, at checkout to get 15% off your first order. Okay, back to the show. Are you fishing like out of the boat or is this like, how are you fishing in this? I don't know if you want to pick the eel or whatever river. Yeah, we're generally side drifting, you know, so fish using the boat is the weapon and, you know, just getting extended drifts and background runs. So side drifting, what would that be if you were, describe maybe that if somebody's in the, and could you do this side drifting in the other rivers or the Trinity, the lower sack, are you doing different techniques? Yeah, we're, um, side drifting is just casting an indicator off the side of the boat, um, say 15 to 20 feet off the boat and then getting your indicators slightly head of the boat so you know when your flies land feeding you know feeding a little sat the slack and then the guide kind of rowing with you and pacing your indicator you know and so what happens then is you're keeping your flies on the bottom for as long as possible and i always tell people the boat is the weapon so like when you walk and wade you know you cast you do your drift and maybe you can extend your drift for 50 feet let's just use that as a number and then you have to strip back in and start over, right? And it can yeah. work really well in small rivers where you can't get boats into, like you don't have another option. But um, on a river like the Eel, uh, you might have a run that's 100 yards long, right? So uh, let's say 50 of those yards is like the prime holding water, you know, so you can have your clients cast in uh, and you start your drift and then you're literally just going to float with them for 50 yards with their flies on the bottom, you know? So what it does is it maximizes your time, uh, your flies in the zone. So, and then you get to the bottom of that 50 yards, of that prime holding water, then you just row back to the top and you repeat and, um, do it as many times as you want, you know? Yeah. How do you avoid, and this probably depends on water clarity, but how do you avoid spooking the fish? You would think the boat being right there. Yeah. How do you avoid that? Yeah, some of it's water clarity. I mean, if it's steel-eyed green, let's say you have three, four feet of visibility, I mean, those fish can't even see you anyways, you know. If you're fishing low and clear water, you know, a lot of those fish are going to go deeper. And so a lot of our indicator setups, we're running at like eight to eight and a half feet of, to our weight. So at that kind of depth, it doesn't really matter, you know. Um, yeah. You, know, you can get your indicators farther away, you know. So rather than fishing 20 feet, you can go 25 or 30 but generally, when you start getting in that 30 foot range, your hook set becomes weaker. One thing about coastal steelhead is you have to have a good hook set and you have to have those first two strips have to be really, really fast. 
Yes, so they stay on the hook. Describe that. How would that, if you're doing that when a fish takes, maybe describe how you get a good hook set. Yeah. So it's interesting um, for all you trout guys, you know, we're used to watching an indicator and any little slightest movement, we're setting the hook. But when you start fishing for coastal steelhead or where it's a really aggressive animal, again, we're talking, you know, eight to 15 pound fish. Uh, we don't set the hooks on these little ticks and these little moves of the indicator. You know, we want a full hard takedown. So let's say you get a really hard takedown and then you want to set the hook as pretty much as hard as you can, as fast as you can. But the, the biggest thing is, you know, get that hard hook set. And then those first two strips are extremely important. That's what's going to make sure that that fish doesn't drop your, your fly. So a lot of coastal steelhead, they do three things when you first hook them. The first thing they do is a massive figure eight under the water and they'll do like three or four of these massive figure eights, these big body rolls. So that's where your stripping comes in play. If you don't strip twice to prevent that fish from rolling its head over, it's going to drop your hook probably 50% of the time. You know, I always tell people when you're coastal steelhead fishing, if you can keep that fish on for a minute, you probably have a 85 to 90% chance of landing it. But that first minute is the most important part of the whole fight. The first minute and last minute, landing them and then hooking them. Yeah. So the three things, they do the big barrel roll uh, under the water. If you don't strip right away, they come off immediately. Uh, the second thing they do is you'll hook them and then they'll instantly fly out of the water, which steelhead are famous for, you know, and the big coastal ones, they tend to jump further than the valley or mountain steelhead do. And so that's where you're bowing your rod, you know, just like you bow to tarpon, you have to bow to you know, bowing to trout is actually a thing, but you just, the trout are smaller, so they don't come off as often, you know? So the larger the fish, the bigger the jump, you know? So when you hook a 60 pound tarpon and that thing jumps six feet, you have to give, you know, as much slack to that fish as possible for it not to throw the hook. Coastal steelhead fishing is sort of the same way. You know, you hook a 12 pounder and it jumps four or five feet. You can't just hold your rod up because it's just going to shake its head left and right and dump your hook. So you know, that's the second move. And the third move is, you know, you set the hook really hard and you get one strip in and all of a sudden they just take off to the races and not holding that line too tightly, right? And allowing that line to slip to your reel and engage your drag. So those three moves are deadly. The first one, the barrel roll is the one that gets everybody. Yep. Because what are they doing when they, when they do the barrel roll? They're just basically putting slack into your, your hook that's in the corner of their mouth. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So they are literally, it's like a figure eight. Sometimes they get tangled, right? You know, by those fish doing that. But that barrel roll, if you don't strip twice, I mean, the, as soon as they get their head flipped completely over, you know, that, that hook just slides right off their mouth. So, you know, the learning how to bow is easy and just takes time and practice. Uh, learning to let them run is the easiest. That's, that's the steelhead you want to hook because that one stays on. That one's creating tension for you, right? You don't really have to do a lot. You, know, you just don't have to be an idiot and make the mistake of, you know, holding onto your line. So, you know, we're, we're fishing pretty heavy gear over there. You know, we're not fishing, you know, trout tippets. Um, generally, we're just fishing straight maxima, you know, anywhere from 12 to 8 pound maxima, you know. So in tippet world, you know, you're probably talking 15 to 20 pound tippet. So you don't really break fish off unless you're completely rookie mistake. Gotcha. What does that leader setup look like if you're a fish and typical, this, uh, this kind of drifting? Yeah. You're doing? Yeah. So we would do, uh, let's say we were running like eight and a half feet to our weight. So we'd run a big indicator. 
uh, we'd probably run 12 or 10 pound maxima. And that the difference would be based on the water clarity. You know, if we had steelhead green where it was only three or four feet, we're going to use as heavy a line as possible. Um, if the water's getting really ultra clear, then we might drop down to eight pound maxima. It's so we're going to base our, our pound of line, um, you know, based on the water clarity. So let's say it's steelhead green. We have three or four feet of visibility. We're going to drop about eight and a half feet from our indicator of 12 pound maxima. And then we're going to tie a blood knot or a surge knot. Blood knots are stronger. And then we're just going to run two egg patterns. We're going to run one bead and then uh, we're going to run one yarn pattern uh, off the bead. So those are going to be, the bead's going to probably be on 12 pound as well. So we'll just keep the same poundage running down. And then uh, one little trick is putting the second egg on lighter. So if you, you know, when you only have three or four feet of visibility, there's lots of trees and redwoods and snags in the river. So if you do snag up on your bottom egg, and let's say you put that one on eight pound maxima, the odds are you're going to break off one egg versus the whole rig. Um, so it saves you some time and some, some money as well. And then at that knot junction, we're going to use quite a bit of split shot, you know, so a lot of the guides have gotten away from using lead, you know, so a lot of guys are using that Dunsmere 10 shot. So they have different sizes, but the, the biggest one they make is called SSG. It's uh, 1.6 grams of weight. Um, most guys are going to be using an SSG plus a AAA. So a AAA is half of that. So that's 0.8, you know, so most of us are going to be using about 2.4 grams of weight to keep that down in the zone for as long as possible. It's a really simple setup. You know, the thing about coastal steelhead fishing, it's, it's hunting and searching. Uh, a big trick to it is that you kind of fish quickly, you know, and something looks really good. Maybe you give it two or three back rows, you give it two or three chances, but if you don't hook one in two or three chances, then you keep moving. Um, you keep moving until you get your first hookup. And, uh, for any of the steelhead anglers out here, then we know that steelhead travel together as they migrate from the ocean, you know? So once you find one, that means there's others either in the run above you that you missed in that run or the next run coming up you know so as soon as you hook that first fish then all of a sudden you kind of put the brakes on and then you start working the river a lot more thoroughly at least for like the next mile let's say in the next mile you don't hook one then you start speeding up again until you hook the second one you know but as soon as you hook that fish whether it's your second fish your third fish then all of a sudden you put the brakes on and you be a lot more methodical and you work the water a lot harder because you already know there's other fish. It might only be one other fish, but generally they swim in groups, right? So generally they're going to be in groups of five to 10. I've fished the coast a lot and you know, I've seen pods of a hundred. So it just depends on how big of a pod comes in with the rainstorm or the surf, you know, um, the swell conditions, but yeah, so that, that's a big trick. So fish quick until you find one. And if you're walking and waiting, you don't, I mean, you can do the same thing, you know, get to a spot, you know, fish it five, six times, you know, you don't get bit. I would probably reel in and move to the next spot until you find that, that fish. And then all of a sudden start working the whole water more thoroughly. There you go. That's a great tip. Yeah. So don't get stuck in one run thinking just because you caught fish there the day before. Although, yeah, I mean, you can get to a spot if it's a good run, fish can stack up. But if you're going through with multiple passes and nothing, just keep moving until you find the fish. That's a good tip. Yeah, I mean, steelhead are, are generally always on the move, and the only time they're not is when the water is, like, really low and clear. You know, a lot of times, really low and clear scares a lot of people off, but if you're nymphing, you can actually do fairly well. You just got to adjust your egg colors. Your egg colors have to get a lot more pale. They can't be bright. 
And then when it gets low and clear, those fish are sitting in those deep, slow tailouts, right? Those big tanks, you know, they're not up in the riffles because they're scared. You know, so a lot of times when the water gets really low and clear, you got to kind of adjust where you're fishing. You got to fish that deep, slow kind of pond speed water. And then you got to change you know, your egg colors and make them pale, right? Um, like yeah. really pale oranges, really pale peaches. Um, nothing can be bright because those fish are ultra spooky. Right. What size is the a fly? What would be a, if like a yarn fly, what would be a type name and maybe like a size? There's a fly called a micro spawn. It's pretty famous across the country. So we just take the micro spawn and we just make it larger. So on normal conditions, let's say three, four, five feet of visibility, we'd be fishing um, shrimp pink is one of our favorite colors. We hand tie my shrimp pink micro spawns or steelhead orange is another popular color. And we tie them on size four uh, egg hooks uh, or size two, you know, so think if you buy a store-bought microspawn it's either a size 12 or a 10 one of those you know just drill big you know make sure you have a hook that's going to work and it's going to hold on to a 15 pounder right something yeah. that's going to really bury in there and you know legally on the coast we have to fish barbless you know having a barb is uh, a lot easier to land them so that's where your stripping becomes really important when you first hook them but the nice thing about the yarn is sometimes those little small teeth that steelhead and trout have uh, will sometimes get stuck in that yarn and give you a little extra bonus in terms of holding on. Oh, right. So that's the thing with this yarn. This is, I'm not sure what kind of yarn it is, but yeah, I'm, I'm always think of like the glow bug, right? The old glow bug, uh-huh. which was just glow bug yarn. And there's, yeah, similar, but this has a little bit different design. Is there a specific thing about this, this pattern that's different than say a glow bug or one of the, any other like? bug type uh, yarn fly? I don't know if it truly matters, to be honest. I have done thousands of days of steelhead fishing at this point in my life. And, you know, things I thought were true when I was younger, you know, the more I fish, I think a lot of the stuff we believe are myths, you know? Yeah. So I I think a lot of times with steelhead fishing, I think the brightness of your egg really matters. I, I have seen that in person that, you know, if you get clear water, you know, like, choosing the right egg color is is ultra important but you know if there's only three or four feet of visibility you just want a bright egg i mean it does i don't think it really matters and I, I think it's more about getting it in front of them than it is per se if you're fishing a micro spawn or like a standard glow bug i don't i think it's more about the color of the egg and it just really you know when the water's clear you want that egg to be pale you know when the water's green you want it to be bright and you know i mean some guys go out there with a foot and a half of visibility you know those conditions are pretty rough to fish in that is all about maximizing the size of the egg making something as big and as bright as possible you know a foot and a half for a fish to see you know so yeah um, some guys will even use chartreuse when it's that color right just trying to get the fish's attention and a lot of steelhead are not you know when you're fishing and nymphing them they're not moving to your fly you have to take your to them right it's a whole different concept than swinging you're not trying to make fly and then chase, right? So, yeah. So it's it's more about color and size of the egg than it is per se what pattern or type of flight. Right, right. Cool. And so you did some fishing in Oregon as well. Did you, were you doing similar things in Oregon? And the rivers like the Eel versus say a Nestucca, how similar are those rivers? Um, yeah, doing the exact same thing. Um, I love the Nestucca. I have been many days there. Actually, my top, little steelhead day ever of my life was on the Nestucca. We had been there. Um, I had a good friend who lived in Seaside and we had been there for a couple days already. There was no rain in Oregon for like 
two weeks. So everything was super low and clear. You know, we'd fished in a stucca for two days. We were, you know, we did well, you know, we were hooking like five or six a day, you know, hmm. um, the steelhead fishing in Oregon is significantly better than California. Oh, it is. So it's quite a bit better than any of the rivers you talked about. Yes. It's a whole nother level. If you're nymphing them, you know, like I said, on the eel, your average day for the boat, you're hooking two or three. For most of my experience in Oregon, you know, you're hooking five to six on average. So, I mean, it's pretty much double of California on a daily basis. So we had been on the Nestucca, um, fishing out of a raft and doing the side drifting thing. And, you know, like I said, we, I think the two days before we took five or six each day. And then the end of the second day, it started, uh, the first storm rolled in and it started sprinkling. Um, generally rain and steelhead fishing, they kind of go hand in hand, but storms are not good, right? Cause that's when rivers rise and rivers blow out. And as soon as the rivers blow out, the fish are moving. So not, not only can the fish not see your flies anymore, but now they're, they're all wanting to go spawn and migrate. So the end of the second day, it started sprinkling and that evening it turned into steady rain and we woke up to a rising river, which is generally a bad thing when you're a steelhead fisherman. You don't want a rising river because that means those fish are about to go on the move, but it had been so low that the river had only jumped like a foot and a half. And so we went out and fished the exact same section we had fished the day before and uh, we ended up hooking 26 coastal fish that day. Oh, wow. It was mind-blowing. I mean, it, <laughs> the same water we'd fished the day before, those fish weren't moving because it hadn't rained in two weeks, you know. And so what had happened is those fish felt the river rising. And, you know, days before we were catching all these fish in these really slow, deep pond sections. And then those fish were getting excited and they were all moved up into the fast buckets, into the, you know, the easy, easy water to catch them in. And the river would end up blowing out that evening and was not fishable the next day. But it literally felt like every spot we went to, it was like first or second cast, you know, and it was just one of those days you read about, one of those days you dream about, you know, it, it probably will never happen again in the rest of my life. Um, right. You know, I think my other, my second at best day besides that is probably 15, you know what I mean? So to catch 11 or hook 11 more on that, I mean, I mean, it was just one of those days that's written in storybooks. So you just have to spend a lot of time. You kind of have to get lucky, you know. But steelhead fishing, uh, coastal steelhead fishing, not the valleys or the mountains. The valleys and mountains, again, those are more like trout fishing. Yeah, right, right. But the eel, the eel and the other, yep. what, what are the other uh, big names that people would know about on the coast down there? Yeah, so the big names, um, the Van Dusen, the Matoll, those are the Van Dusen Matoll are smaller rivers. The Smith is a big one. The Smith is nice because it clears the fastest. So the Smith is pretty much fishable within 24 hours after a storm is done, you know? So let's say you get an inch of rain, all the rivers in Northern California are blown out, you know, 24 hours later, the Smith is coming into shape. The Smith is hard though, because it's a really big river um, that has tons of water. So it is hard to fish. You see a lot more gear fishermen on the Smith than you do fly fishermen. And then there's Redwood Creek. I mean, there's some smaller stuff, you know, that like walk and wade guys do that, you know, aren't necessarily boat rivers. There's a lot of options. There's there's more options in Oregon. Like you guys have way more coastal steelhead rivers than Northern yeah. California does. My experience up there where you live, you know, it seems like every 30 miles you're driving across another steelhead river, you know. Yeah. So they're pretty much endless up there. And you guys have less pressure and, you know, your state manages the fisheries better. So 
you know, for those that are traveling to steelhead fish, don't come to California. <laughs> oh, really? So that's not the place just because of the pressure and just not as many numbers. Yeah. It's lots of people and you guys are all competing for the same number of fish in, in Oregon. You're going to find a lot more solitude and, you know, in larger fish numbers. But, you know, for the guys who live in, you know, San Francisco Bay Area, Northern California, you know, it's really nice to only have to drive three or four hours to, to get into, you know, true coastal steelhead. The market in, um, for guiding in California tends to be your your Bay Area, Sacramento. Yeah, that's the hub. Yeah, that's definitely the hub. Nice, nice. Well, before we get out of here in a bit, I just wanted to highlight a couple of things. Uh, maybe talk about your book. You have a book out there. I know you've got one in the past, one coming up. Uh, give us a heads up there. Yeah, I published a book in 2022. It's called A Real Job. Um, you can find it on Amazon. It's a collection of short stories, um, just crazy people have done in the boats. Uh, it's kind of fun. I wrote it for myself. Um, I didn't really have any desire to make any money off it. And I was going to publish it and say, hey, you know, if I can sell 500 copies, I, you know, pay for the the cost of the editor and the printing and all the process. And it was really humbling. You know, after I published it about a month later, I got a message on social media uh, from some guy I don't even know. And he said, this is the best book I've I've read all year. I hope you write another one. And I was kind of taken back by that. I was like, oh, wait, really? <laughs> like <laughs> someone's enjoying this. And then the following week, the same thing happened. And this just kind of keeps happening every week. I get like two or three messages on social media, nice. some from other parts of the country, some from other countries across the world. And you know, it's to the point where it's, you know, it's not a bestseller, but I've sold like 2000 copies and, and there's been a lot of just positivity around it and just how many people have enjoyed it and because of that, um, so many people asking for another one, I decided to start writing a second book, kind of a sequel that's going to be coming out probably in March. So I'm pretty pumped on that. Derek DeYoung did the cover for the second book. Oh yeah, Derek. Yep. Yeah. So um, Derek and his wife did a great job on designing the second cover. The second book's going to be called, it's kind of a play off the same word. You know, the first one is a real job, R-E-E-L. The second book is going to be called Really uh unbelievable fly fishing stories and it's the same thing it's a collection of short stories from the boat and just guide stories you know after you've guided for 21 years there's a lot of stuff that i haven't seen and stuff that people find unbelievable and um you know it's just my my way of sharing that with the world perfect good awesome well uh let's just do a quick little fly shop uh, shout out here fly shop friday so this one today is presented by Togan's Fly Shop. They uh, just moved out from actually Canada. They're in Colorado now. So just talked to Brad recently. So we're going to give Togan's a big shout out. But maybe give a shout out to where you were when you're in California to a, sh- a fly shop there and then where you are now. I'm not sure. Do you have any shops around your area now? Yeah. Uh, in California, I was an independent, so I didn't work for any shops. So I started with an outfitter that no longer exists, worked for them for four years. And then the last 16 years, I've done my own thing. Currently here in Flathead Valley, I am guiding for Big Fork Anglers uh, out of Big Fork, Montana. Uh, we specialize in fishing the Flathead River here in the valley and then the lower Clark's Fork and the Black. So those are our big three. And uh, if you guys like dry fly fishing for trout, it's not coastal steelhead fishing, but you know, all of us like to see a fish rise to a fly. There's plenty of that here in Montana. Perfect. Good deal. All right. Awesome. And and just a couple of random ones as we get out of here. First, uh, we're going back on this, the boat. I'm interested in what boat, what's your, I guess, uh, for steelhead, let's take it to California. What were you, it sounds like you're using a raft more than say a drift boat or something like that. 
Uh, no, I was actually using a drift boat in California. A lot of the rivers we fish in California are big enough. You don't need necessarily a raft. Oh, gotcha. What was your boat you were using back then? Yeah. So I'm, I'm a hide guy. I've been a hide guy my whole life. Uh, so I think I'm on my fourth hide. I switched to a skiff, um, which is a lower profile lighter boat. I switched to that about six years ago and, uh, we'll never go back to a full size boat. I hear you. I rode my first hide and my first skiff. It was a hide uh, skiff this last year in uh, Idaho. And it's unbelievable. I mean, as long as you're not going through big white water, right? These things are amazing. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you need to go through big water, then, you know, it's not the boat for you. Um, but to be honest, most of the, your boat rivers, you can either skirt a wave or, you know, dodge a rock, you know, if you know how to row well. So even all the coastal steelhead fishing I would do in California, I was running my skiff. I didn't need a full-size boat. But that skiff is about 180 pounds lighter than their full size. And when you think about that, it's like, well, that's technically having like one less person in the boat every day, you know? So it's just, it feels so much different on your body. You know, it's like a little hot rod on the river. So now that I've rode a drift boat for 21 years and I'm 41 now, my body could use a little less weight. That's right. (laughs) Nice. Good. And you mentioned, uh, I'm curious on the property. It sounds like you moved uh, to Montana. Do you have like a little chunk of property now out there? What's that look like versus what you were at before? Yeah, we, uh, in Chico, you know, we lived in kind of suburbia. You know, we had a standard four bedroom house on like a quarter acre lot, you know, with lots of neighbors. And we now live in our specific town is Summers, Montana. Um, we're about a mile from Flathead Lake and we were able to buy, um, a nice home on nine acres. Oh, wow. What's that like for you, Ryan? Like, you know, you go from, you know, kind of in suburbia and now with nine acres, like uh, describe that. Is that a pretty cool deal to have that? Uh, it is. I still look out my back window and can't believe I live here every day, you know, um, to have space. And we have neighbors, you know, just everyone's on these eight to 20 acre parcels, you know, and yeah, it's so cool to have space for kids. You know, it's a lot safer here in Montana than California to let my kids go outside and roam and do whatever they want. We give them a walkie-talkie, you know, and so right. they call on the walkie-talkie if they need anything. And one of the big adjustments is mowing the lawn. Oh, right. <laughs> you know, so uh, you mowing the lawn on suburbia takes you about, what, 45 minutes. You know, here we have a riding lawnmower and uh, we have about five acres of grass. Oh, wow. What's that take you? Well, so, you know, I I have two girls, so 12 and 9. So what I do is uh, we taught my 9-year-old how to ride the riding lawnmower, and then uh, my 12-year-old's on a push mower, and then I'm on the weed whacker. So if all three of us are going, uh, we can do the five acres in about five hours. There you go, five hours. That's not bad. Yeah, but that's a team event. You know, if it's just me, it's every bit of all day, you know. But heck, I'll give you five hours of my life every couple of weeks to have just space and the ability to just absorb God's beauty, you know? Exactly. Nice. Well, this is perfect. I think we'll leave it there and we'll send everybody out to uh, casthope.org if they have questions. And uh, yeah, this has been a, a great conversation, Ryan. I appreciate, you know, everything you're doing, definitely for the kids going back to that and giving us some tips on steelhead fishing. So yeah, excited to keep in touch with you. And I think we've got probably some events. I know we're working on one. So we'll be in touch definitely with you and Hogan and and excited to keep in touch here. Yeah. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Dave. I appreciate being on the show. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love.
please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.